Tyler Sapala's creative and yet practical world of work. Welcome to Seemingly Ordinary. It's a podcast about people who on the surface appear totally ordinary, but underneath the surface, they have amazing things going on. I've interviewed Tyler Sapala before, and I hope to interview him again. Like a few people I'm very amazed by, he has the seeming ability to just not see obstacles where other people see obstacles. He's completed a whole Ironman. He double majored in college. One time, in a medically appropriate way, he fasted for five days eating nothing. He sold his car and biked eight miles one way to work for nearly two years. He's had months where he saved anywhere from 70 to 95% of his income. And he absolutely is able to learn new skills and get paid for them. Lots of new skills. And that's what I want to ask Tyler about today. I want to kind of review his job history, his larger thoughts on how people can get jobs, even in a tough economy. Should we follow our passion or should we follow the money? Or should we, as Mike Rowe would say, just do what's useful to society? And I'd like to ask him his advice when it comes to teaching and coaching kids and teenagers. Hi, Tyler. Damn, it's good to see you again. Good to see you too. Um, let's start with the last year and change, you know, just a few extra months, I suppose, just to give people a sense of what you've been up to. Starting roughly in January <clears throat> of 2020, what paid jobs have you had? Oh, wow. So, um, since you said 2020, yeah. Um, the main jobs I've had obviously is the, uh, teaching position at St. James with you, um, to being a philosophy and Latin teacher. Uh, that's my most official, uh, job, but the other ones in the past year I've been doing is, uh, painting, uh, just for, homes, interior homes, uh, painting, but then also I've been doing some carpentry as well lately. Um, so the summertime I built a really big built-in bookshelf for a family. Um, but that took about, a, uh, around a month, uh, to completely, con- um, design and then construct it, get it all painted for them. Um, so yeah, teaching the painting, the carpentry, but then also uh, some bus driving for the school. It's kind of a side job. And then uh, lastly, uh, bread baking. It's been the newest thing. So I've been uh, getting into bread baking, specifically all things related to sourdough baking. Um, so this past year, I've really dived into that and had the opportunity to start selling my bread to people, sharing it, but then also teaching people how to bake sourdough. So that's, uh, that's actually something I just did last week was a, a class on how to, how to prepare and bake sourdough. So that's uh, my latest addition. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'm so curious. Uh, let's, let's just retract back to painting. I think a lot of people think painting mm-hmm. is just very, very simple. You know, just put down some drop cloths and paint. But it's just very easy to be sloppy with something like that and just not get paid for it. Um, and just from the painters, I know a lot of their jobs seem like they kind of work by word of mouth. Like they get one job and if they do a good job, it leads to the next job. I think maybe two or three bad jobs would pretty much kill your painting business. Um, give me just your impressions on how did you acquire these skills? Why don't you mind doing this sort of thing? And uh, how do you grow, grow the painting side hustle? 
Yeah, the the painting kind of just started off on my on my own, um, painting for myself. But then I think I ran into a, a couple friends, family, family friends, uh, where it was almost like a quid pro quo. Like I'll, I'll do this for you, and and you'll do this for me or that for me. Um, but then eventually, I think uh, those people that I painted for noticed that I I did take it seriously, and I'm also the type of person that. I uh, won't do a job if I don't feel confident in it, too. Um, so <clears throat> if someone asks me to do something, I'm going to be very honest with, like, my comfortability. <laughs> and, like, if I, if I don't feel like I'm a very uh, proficient painter, I'm not going to do the job for you. If I don't think I can get it done well, I'm not going to do it. So after, uh, yeah, doing the quid pro quo types of painting jobs, uh, I kind of got referred on to, yeah, like you said, other other family friends or other friends and those friends and eventually it just kind of became more of a of a legitimate thing so much so that i started my own llc um yeah to make sure i'm like covered in case of any type of uh, liability so yeah it kind of stems out that way okay so is it a painting llc it kind of encompasses a few different things it's kind of like all the enterprises that i embark in like the, the soap making the bread baking the painting <laughs> i guess just things that I, I i produce for other people at least is what it currently is the sapala company how does that fit under one llc do they care i mean it's if- like it's a good question i mean i uh, i listed as home goods or like home services so i I've, maybe i'm being a little flexible okay <laughs> the irs is gonna come for me now <laughs> gotcha <laughs> but well yeah, no, home, home goods, they're like the soap baking, the bread baking, soap making, bread baking, the home services with um, with like the painting. It's all related to the home life, but um, yeah, potentially I'm being a little too lenient on myself and my company. Okay, well, I don't know, maybe not. I am actually. I mean, if, if Walmart can sell everything, maybe you can, you know, have a wide variety of yeah. things that you do. Yeah, right. I am actually thinking of starting a new company. Um, when we moved to Wichita, we can get into that later, but it's related to bread baking, but I have a kind of a new concept I just came up with, with the, uh, within the last week that I'm pretty excited about. Yeah, I, I totally want to hear about that. And for people who are maybe not terribly interested in painting or building shelves or something, this is kind of getting to a larger set of skills. Uh, so, so I ask people to bear with me on the other hand, if, if people enjoy painting and things like that, then I think we're probably in good shape. But, okay, so bread baking. Um, that one for me kind of came out of nowhere from you. Um, it kind of did and it kind of didn't. How did that start and how did that turn into a money-making endeavor? The bread baking endeavor kind of got started right before COVID hit. Um, and back in 2019, I actually got really intrigued while watching some YouTube videos of some artisan bread bakers. You know, I'm, I'm kind of a sucker for like the YouTube artisans, even if like a, something I'll never do in my whole life, like making a knife. I just, uh, I find it so fascinating watching other people who are so good with their craft. So <clears throat> I got interested in the bread baking and it, I think it had just occurred to me as like, wait a second, I've done, I've done some baking in my past and, that looks so cool and potentially I could do this too, like actually become more of an expert. Um, and I think throughout 2020, there were so many more people posting their videos of these artisanal, um, 
types of skills. So I got just kind of hooked and my, um, my girlfriend of the time who became my fiance, she, she like really encouraged me because she got into sourdough before I did. So sourdough is kind of like the king of, of uh, bread baking because it's a little bit diff- more difficult. Some people think it's more healthy. Uh, it's a, like a process of developing your own yeast as well. So it's a little intimidating because of that too. But she kind of gave me the courage to actually like finally try it. So that's how I got into it. And I just fell in love with it when I started doing it. Uh, so I baked almost like every single day of 2020, uh, making sourdough and other different types of bread. Okay. So I'm uh, completely hooked now. now. Now this question is going to sound like a little bit of a stretch maybe, but okay. So you also did an Ironman and uh, you didn't have a car for a year and a half because you wanted to bike 16 miles a day, you know, to get to work. Uh, and so then with bread, instead of starting with something simple, you go for the most complex thing there is, sourdough. Is that, I don't know, what is that? A character virtue, a character flaw? What is that? <laughs> yeah, right. That probably wouldn't be a virtuous thing. Because <laughs> you're right, I do kind of jump to the extreme. I, like, I'm not going to do just a, a wimpy Olympic triathlon. I'm going to do the Ironman triathlon. <laughs> I'm, I'm not just going to, like ride my bike every other day. I'm going to sell my car and, and ride my bike every day, you know? Um, yeah, there's probably not a virtuous thing, <laughs> but, <laughs> but what it, I, it, uh, it, it's the way that I, I like to live my life. I like to be a little bit more like, uh, extreme or like, just like really jump into something and commit myself to something in a very like rigorous way. Um, I don't like to, to go half-ass with it. So, um, yeah, I normally still have an ability to like, and, and like the moderation and prudence to say like, you know, this was maybe a bad decision. I'm going to step out of this and, and uh, reevaluate. Like I reevaluate every single week at the end of, at the end of uh, Sunday, at the beginning of Sunday, just a chance for me to like reevaluate and scrutinize my life. Uh, so it's not like I'm just doing this blindly. I'm making sure like through the mentorship of other people, the friendship of of many people that like I'm not just being foolish with this stuff, but I do like to live intensely. That's awesome. I've, I've read about people who do that in books and I think I need to do that a little bit more often. Uh, Stephen R. Covey recommends that in seven habits. Uh, habit number three is uh, plan by the week, basically. And that's what you're supposed to do at the end of the week. You're supposed to assess what went mm-hmm. well, what went poorly, what could be improved. And it's all just part of a goal setting idea but it just, it keeps people from being stuck. You know, like, oh, I did the same thing week after week after week after week with no improvement. And, you know, we look at people and we wonder, why doesn't that guy ever learn his lesson? And it might be because they're not doing that reflection that you just talked about. Um, I, I guess I'm getting a little off track, but I think it's related. How did you hit upon that idea of assessing where am I going and do I need to quit or what do I need to do? How did you hit upon that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think I've been really impacted by a few people, some ancient philosophers, for example, like uh, uh, Plato quoting Socrates, I think it is, uh, um, basically know thyself or the unexamined life is not worth living. Um, But some of my uh, philosophy professors that were really... Uh, emphatic about this that like you need to make sure you're self-scrutinizing 
um, I guess too, just like the Catholic tradition of uh, examination of one's conscience at the end of every day. Hmm. Uh, is it is widely practiced in our culture, or at least like our religious culture? So I think I was really impacted by people who did that well and took it uh, took it to heart. And I think I've noticed in my own life too that things are much better when I am reevaluating and making sure I'm not just going with the flow to, with the people going to hell, you know? Right, right. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to live my life that way of, of uh, figuring out five years later, 10 years later that I've been slowly mindlessly going to a place I don't want to be, you know? You know I, um, I, I've read yeah. that that's very good advice. Tim Ferriss talks about that a little bit in the four hour work week is that when he was in his twenties and he was working for a corporation, he looked at the people who were five or seven years in front of him And then he said, that is who I'm going to be. Uh, That is where I'm going. And then you just ask the question, do I like that? You know, do I like that person where I'm actually going to wind up? Because you are going to wind up in that spot. So just kind of a good question for reflection. I like the fact that you get it from the Catholic Church and you get it from Plato and Socrates. Um, So it's time-honored tradition. Okay, so back to bread-breaking. I think the fact that you turned it into a class is just awesome because, like you said, a million people got into bread baking because what else are people going to do? They're just going to stay home. But not everybody turned it into a class. Not everybody had 40 or 50 people sign up the first week that they turned it into a class and got paid, I can't remember, 40 or $50 per person is what they paid. I, I mean, that's a nice little side hustle for, you know, basically about maybe eight to 16 hours worth of work. Um, and you, I'm sure you had fun. I'm sure it was great. What made you realize you could turn that into a class, turn it into a side hustle? Yeah, I, um, I think I was motivated by the enthusiasm of my students. So as I've been doing my bread baking throughout the past year, I've, I've uh, been trying my best to share it with other people, especially my students. Um, I try to bring in something, something new or just like another loaf, like with my perfected techniques, just to share it with them. Um, and I think that was the thing that moved me initially was like, this is, I think I just was struck by how simple it was to bring in uh, a loaf of bread to my students and how much they enjoyed it. And okay. I was like, man, this is, this is something that doesn't cost me much because sourdough is so inexpensive in terms of materials. It's only flour and water and if you want a little flavor you add some salt that's, that's literally all it is okay so i was like compared to like baking a pie or making cake which has like all the like um more expensive ingredients like butter for example is probably the most expensive ingredient um like baking sourdough is very inexpensive so i was like this is such a good connecting activity so my students loved it and then eventually my students were like Mr. Sapala, we got to do this. Like we have got to have a bread club. I was like, sure, that would actually be really cool. Cause then like, I could teach you guys how to do this too. And they're just have the initial enthusiasm too. Um, that would really share my own, my own heart for it. So they were enthused about it, but it's really hard to find a time throughout the school day to like really dive into it. Cause bread baking is not like something you just do in a half an hour. There's like, <laughs> it's normally 24 hours of a process 24 to 48 so i was like you know what maybe we don't have enough time for this 
during the school day or maybe even in a weekend. But like spring break is coming up and a lot of people still can't travel because of COVID. That might be like the perfect time for all of us to come to school just for a couple hours a day. I'll teach you everything I know for the, the next four days and uh, I'll bring all the materials you'll need. I'll bring all the ingredients uh, and I'll give you an opportunity to bake a loaf from home every day. So that was just the idea. And got, yeah, I got 36 people signed up, some students, some faculty, some parents. Um, and it was, it was an awesome thing um, just to be able to share that skill with them. And I think, yeah, you asked like how I got to that point and there's the enthusiasm, but I think it also like, it, it took some time to get some confidence in my own skill. Um, like, I think it's just natural to doubt yourself too. Uh, like, do I really have something worthwhile to offer as a class or as a skill? Um, and I think just their enthusiasm for it and also like other people saying like, man, you, you actually do make really good bread. Um, and I watched, I watched so many hours of footage of artisans on YouTube, of different bakers throughout the world. I've read books on it. So I've like definitely put my time in. I was like, you know what, if I put this much time into all this stuff, um, I should feel comfortable and confident sharing it with, with especially inexperienced bakers. Um, so yeah, I kind of just went there and I thought I had a product worthwhile. Well, just everything about it is just kind of like a classic way that a side hustle should be put together. Just from my understanding of side hustles, um, it was an idea that was right in front of you the whole time because you'd been doing this as a hobby for a very long period of time. And uh, a second thing was you just flat out loved it. Um, and so it didn't even occur to you. Uh, I remember from private conversation that it didn't even really occur to you that this could be a class until maybe about three, four weeks before you actually offered the class. So, I mean, here you've been doing this thing for close to a year, something like that, and just really enjoying it, really building up your skills, and then sharing it, bringing in bread for people to eat. And of course, it's like cake or something. You know, people want a piece of bread. It's like, oh, hot, fresh, you know, good smelling baked bread. You know, it's kind of addictive, you know, so people want that. So just you really kind of laid the groundwork for the whole thing. And then the monetary aspect is almost like an afterthought. Um, it just seems to me like this is a classic side hustle. A lot of people who promote the whole idea of side hustles say it's the idea is usually right in front of you. It's something that you're good at. It's something that you've always done. Like maybe a person could be a tutor or they could be an athletic skills coach or they could babysit because they came from a big family. Or they could do yard work because they always did yard work growing up in life. It was just something that was always there. It was just right in front of you. And then you capitalized on it. I just want to congratulate you for that. Um, it's just rather than having to invent something brand new, which is maybe the way to not do a side hustle, is to think, you know, I think I'm going to build rockets to go to Mars or something. Um, that'd be great if you always built rockets or if you're Elon Musk, but for the rest of us, it's probably not the way to go. I just want to compliment you on that. That's just, it's very impressive yeah. to me. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I, you're, you're right. I didn't have the idea until like a week or two ago before spring break. Um, yeah, like you said, it was just, uh, yeah, this would be something I could do and I already kind of do it every day. So why not just bring a few people along, you know? So yeah, just right there in front of me. 
Okay. Now I, I, I want to ask a bunch of questions, which I think would be good for people who want to be more like you, who want to be able to create jobs, create side hustles, not just be an employee, but also to be kind of excited and enthusiastic about these things. And so that's really kind of the rest of my questions are along those lines. Um, I, I just want people to really get a chance to know what makes you tick. So I guess my, my first question is just biographical. Let's back up to the past. Can you briefly tell me every job you've ever had, every paid job? Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to get my list out here. Okay. Um, I know I did start as a, <clears throat> a little paper boy, you know, like delivering. It actually wasn't the, the daily newspaper, it was the weekly newspaper. Okay. Um, but like the, on the weekends. So I did that for a little while, but I think I got to the point where um, I realized I was getting paid like half of minimum wage with all the time I was putting into it. Oh my god! Like, Wait a second, they're taking they're taking advantage of me. Um, so I stopped doing that, and then but that was like before I was even maybe fourteen or so. Uh, but then once I turned fifteen, I, I started working at the local grocery store up in Minnesota. High B was the the grocery store. Probably one of my least favorite jobs. No offense to High B, but I uh, I think just as like a the entry level position, it uh, like being the bag boy and the cart getter <laughs> was uh, it was just I think the time went by so slowly, mm. and I also didn't like how I had to like I had to dress up for like a five hour shift. I had like to wear a shirt and tie, I had to like, bring my lunch, and it just seemed like the process of getting to work took like an hour as well. I was like, what am I doing? I'm getting paid minimum wage for a job I don't like. Um, and uh, I just, yeah, I just, I felt like that also is, put, I was putting too much time into it and not really getting too much return. Um, but then also in high school, I did a few other things. I became uh, kind of like a, a cab cabinet maker, cabinet assembler um, for a, uh, a, basically a factory in Minnesota. Um, and I also was a school janitor. This was actually one of my favorite jobs. And I think this one kind of inspired me a little bit being a school janitor. And it's not, it's not what you might initially think of like clean, cleaning toilets and that sort of thing. Um, it was more like the, the summer work of fixing things like re uh, waxing the floors and fixing desks or like just fixing things throughout the school. I think that really had a big impact on me. Um, cause I think for the first time I realized that I, uh, uh, I just really enjoyed making something look nice. Mm -hmm. Like if you take the school, you take the school that looks like really worn out in, uh, in the beginning of June. And then by the end of August, like it looks just almost immaculate. And it just felt so good to do that. I think that was one of the first times I, I, I realized I had like a real passion for, uh, doing some like manual labor, working with my hands and, and trying to like make something look beautiful. So those were the main, actually I did a couple more jobs in high school. Like the ex, I became a, a painter for the first time, exterior painting of homes for a couple different people. Uh, and then I worked another factory job um, just to make a couple extra thousand um, over a few breaks. Um, but yeah, those are my high school jobs. So there's like six jobs there. But then also I did some um, some jobs throughout the college. So I was kind of like a part-time faith formator for uh, a cathedral up in Sioux Falls, the Cathedral of St. Joseph. 
So I did that during the summertime. That one I actually kind of uh, was inspired to do because I was considering the priesthood. So I was like, this might be like a good discernment thing for me to like almost like be entrenched entrenched into like parish life and like what is it like to be uh, doing the day to day types of parish activities like what would what would a priest's point of view or the faith formator's point of view be like at a at a parish so that one I kind of did for many reasons but um, like I just mentioned and it was really good for me um, and then in college, I was a resident assistant um, for three years, helping foster like community life at uh, Benedictine College, um, which I think really helped me grow uh, in leadership, but then just like um, being more like willing to reach out to people, be more outgoing. Uh, I think it helped me like really stay involved in school as well. Um, and let's see, that's eight, eight jobs. Number nine is being a residential construction worker, building homes up in Minnesota. That was, again, just another summertime summertime job that really sparked my uh, desire to continually build those uh, those skills of working with one's hands and making things look beautiful. And then also that summertime, I also did landscaping for a company in Minnesota. <clears throat> so I did those two jobs at the same time. Um and then you and I work at St. James Academy. I've been a Latin and philosophy teacher. Uh, I've also done some basketball coaching for five years. I've taught English in Italy to Italian kids. Um, that was just a summertime position. Uh, I've been a bus driver, a big bus driver for uh, St. James, just the activities that we do, uh, basketball, football, uh, whatever it might be. Um, and then most recently been a soap maker and a bread baker. That's just incredible. I think I, that covers I, I think it covers my, everything. I, I think I'm picking up a few themes. One is you like to make things beautiful. I think maybe another yeah. theme is that you enjoy working with your hands, which is interesting for a guy who majored in philosophy and theology. But I guess it's a nice balance. Um, I, I think maybe a lot of the people would think, oh, we should just specialize and just do one thing, would be a little startled at many of your activities. But I, I think those are some common themes. You like working with your hands. You like making things beautiful. You like trying a wide variety of things. And you kind of like jumping in to the deep end of the pool. Like you don't just go for like the 5K. You go for the Iron Man. You don't just go for the make the ordinary bread, you go for making the most complex bread there is. So I, I think that these are admirable traits. And so lately I've been reading this book called Hunt, Gather, Parent. And the author basically was having a hard time raising her own kid. And so she went on a quest to figure out how do I raise my kids so that we're just not fighting all the time. I'm about a third of the way through the book. I'm enjoying it. Um, there's just so many interesting things that just make me want to ask you. Um, she talks a lot about how some kids like to work, some kids hate to work. You don't. Uh, you obviously don't mind working. Were you always like this? Good question. Um, <clears throat> I think my parents would tell you that uh, there's definitely been moments when I I don't. Uh, want to do chores and that sort of thing. 
I think as I reflect on my life, I do notice that if I'm given the freedom to take the initiative, I much more prefer that. Like, for example, I remember as a kid, like if my parents told me to wash the dishes or dry the dishes and they'd be, they'd be home and after a walk in a little while, like I, I hated doing that. <laughs> but if like they didn't tell me to do it and I noticed the dishes needed to be washed, I like, I really preferred doing it. Um, it's almost like if, if the initiative is mine, it's probably a prideful thing, right? But if the initiative is mine, I felt like, yeah, I'm totally happy to do the work. But if I'm being told to do the work, I didn't really like that very much. Uh, I think I noticed that even as a kid, um, maybe kind of ties into some of the, the themes of the book, but having like, having been given the freedom to kind of pursue, uh, pursue this enterprise on my own. Um, I think there's a lot of joy in that. They kind of take ownership of it as well. So yeah, I think I've noticed that from myself. Um, yeah, in, in myself from a very young age. But yeah, I think I, um, I really do value the, the gift of work, of being able to do something uh, like meaningful and good and also to improve my own life through like obviously making money, but then also just these endeavors do teach me about life too. You know, like when I did the bread baking course last week, um, there's, it's not just me like giving um, my time, but I'm also like, I'm learning more about the world and bread baking through this thing. And I think I've like come to see that, that like when I work, like hopefully my work is some sort of rewarding experience that like, I'm capable of learning something meaningful by doing the work. Um, and if that's the case, and if I realize that it doesn't really make work a burden, you know? Um, and that's the, this, it's the same approach I try to take too with, uh, with like working out, for example, you mentioned the Ironman. I don't really do, um, the Ironman training anymore, but I still work out almost, uh, every day or every other day. Um, but I, I don't view it as something like separate from my life um, or something I do on the side. It's something that I'm, I have totally integrated into my life. And as I do the Ironman, I am learning about reality through the Ironman, or I'm learning more about my own psyche or my own potential for uh, overcoming difficult mentally tasking endeavors. You know, it's like, it's not just, something on the side, but I do the Ironman to learn more about myself. And, um, yeah. So I, I guess, um, that's what I, I would say, um, kind of like what your, what your first question was more about, like, uh, it kind of seems that potentially these are two different lives, like the philosophy on one side and, and, uh, and then I got my manual work on the other side, but I really do view them as like totally integrated um, so anytime I do painting, like I see it as an opportunity just to continually, uh, grow my understanding of the world, you know? Right. Yeah. I think it's great because, um, well, there was a play by August Wilson, who was a famous American playwright. And, uh, he had one character that he described as acting without thinking. And then he had another character that he described as thinking without acting. And, uh, the great thing about you is that you both think and act. And uh, I, I just think that's a, a great trait. I, I want to ask, and it's, it's coming from this book that I'm reading. When you were a kid, 
Did your parents encourage you to jump in and help from a very early age? Like I, maybe you don't even know, but okay, so you're a toddler, you're two years old or something like that. And you kind of want to bring your plate to the kitchen, you know, uh, or you just want to help in with whatever they're doing. They're moving the piano. So you, you rush on over and you want to help move the piano. You know, you weigh 40 pounds, you're two years old, you know, you want to help. What were you like as a kid, and did your parents encourage you to jump in and help? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I think my parents definitely did encourage uh, me and my siblings to uh, to have like responsibility. Uh, like every week, we had certain chores. They like looking back, they weren't like huge chores. They're just like uh, cleaning the mirrors and and taking the trash downstairs or whatever it might be. Like I didn't even have to do my own laundry, that sort of thing, but. But there were like weekly responsibilities, monthly responsibilities, um, and I think I I was just like taught by my parents that um, responsibility is a good thing, and if you if you can help like help out our family or help out the neighbors, uh, if you have an if you have a, an ability to do that, and like you should maybe think think about doing that, you know. Um, so yeah, partly I think was just forced like you got to do this but then the other part of it i think was just um displayed by my parents doing the same thing like my dad for example he would like help out our neighbors with the lawn mowing and basically charge like next to nothing just uh just so that he could pay for the gas of the lawn mowing but he did it just be more so out of the kindness of his heart and had the opportunity to help some like old woman out uh, so I think I saw that demonstrated in my own like father and my mom doing similar things too, like uh, her involvement in the parish life. Um, so I think because of that was displayed to me, I, I just kind of took a hint and, and thought I should do the same. Okay. Okay. Now the book is super interesting on this point and you said a key word forced, you know, children being forced to do various <clears throat> chores. And uh, I'm, I'm not done with the book, so I can't say exactly where she lands on this, but she basically talks in one part about how little kids will want to jump in and help. And then the parents will basically tell them you're doing everything wrong and they will take things over and they will start, you know, kind of maybe yelling at the kid and that kind of a thing. She had a story about how her two-year-old daughter wanted to help make shish kebabs. Well, this little girl makes a shish kebab that is nothing but chicken. And she uses up all the chicken. So like all the rest of this shish kebabs would just have to be vegetarian. The mom freaks out and she's like, oh my gosh, you're going to wreck the dinner party, etc." Well, about three months later, they're going to have another party. The kid absolutely does not want to help out. She's like, hey, sweetie, come out here and help make shish kebabs. The kid starts like whining and crying and doesn't want to do it. And I mean, the obvious connection is, well, you, you wrapped her knuckles the first time. She doesn't want to go through that again. Uh, she, she maybe doesn't really know what she did wrong. She just knows that she's a mess up. So she doesn't want to come out and help. And, and I'm just kind of curious, like your, your parents worked hard and, and you picked up by example. But do you remember when you were a little kid, when you when you messed up, how did they treat that? That uh, It's hard for me to remember exactly. Um, I think there was definitely some patience there and I was, I was given the freedom to like mow the lawn and not have it be perfect or shovel the snow. Um, 
or even like experimented a little bit in the in the kitchen with baking and cooking. Um, like I think I enjoyed that. Um, but I totally know what you're what you're talking about because I've seen this in, even in my nieces and my nephews. Uh, for example, I showed them how to bake uh, pizza recently. Like actually make the the dough yourself and and uh, get it like really thin crust, like you know doing the Italian style thing. Okay. Um, which is a hard endeavor initially and takes some assistance. Um, and, and I felt the tension inside of me when I was doing it with my nieces and nephews that like, I have a standard that's much higher than theirs. Right. <laughs> but for them doing it for the first time, like their standard is so low and they're going to enjoy whatever, like whatever happens. Um, and I had to like, let go and just, uh, accept, like guide them but accept the fact that like this pizza is not going to be the best pizza, <laughs> but it's going to be fun. And it's going to be the experience that's necessary for them to like be um, comfortable returning to it. You know, it's like, if I just took over and said, come on, man, like that, <laughs> that's horrible. That just let me do it. I mean, just let me take over, you know, right. And they're going to feel like I, I can't do pizza. And you want, you want them to have the confidence that like, you know, like this might not be the best pizza in the world, but I did that, and I I can maybe do this again. I don't I don't know if my is necessarily my parents who gave me that, but I definitely saw that in my own life that like initially I'm not going to be the best at something like the triathlon again. It's like something I could come back to that like initially I was the worst swimmer and I was like one of the worst long distance runners. <laughs> And I, I thought to myself, like, you know what? I just can't do it. Um, but I, I had to I had to stick with it. And I think through the process of the triathlon stuff, eventually through coaching and persistence, I have like a good reminder for myself, a good example, that whenever I feel like I can't do something, I have to remember that experience because there was a time when I could only swim for 30 seconds. Hmm. But through persistence, I got to a time when I could swim for an hour and a half without stopping. Okay. And there was a time when I could only run two miles, but through like persistence and reaching out to other people and continually coming back, I could run a marathon without too much of an issue, you know? So I think this perspective was given to me just through the course of life of my own experiences that like, I, it's kind of like the growth mindset that like, I might not be good yet, like keyword yet, but eventually, like through persistence and endurance, I'll get there. And I think that's what I would want to give to my kids someday. It's like, yeah, like this pizza isn't really good yet, um, but yeah, it's 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 right now. Like eventually, you're going to get there. And and as a parent or as a teacher, you have to give them the ability to fail, you know, and uh, the compassion of not just like taking it over and doing it for them but like nope you're gonna do it um i'll be here with you guiding you but it's gonna it's gonna be fine you know okay okay so i think that's a very excellent answer and i i think that would have helped maybe a lot of kids out um but a lot of kids who don't like to work i i hate to blame everything on the parent i guess i'd feel like sigmund freud if i did um but it just seems like maybe there's too much criticism out there. Somebody wants to help and people grab the thing out of their hand and tell the kid they're doing wrong and go into the other room and watch TV. Then the kids get to be a little bit older and then that's what they want to do. They want to watch TV for six hours straight. 
instead of jumping in and trying things because you know the minute you make a mistake if somebody's going to pounce that's not good but I, I think you address that let's flip it over to the opposite side of the spectrum um how do you make corrections so that people don't create a catastrophe we're we're baking bread we're baking pizza after all we do kind of want it to turn out we want it to be edible how, how do we how do we flip over to the other side of the spectrum and and criticize but criticize in a way that works mm. yeah that that's a, I think a tough one and a good one for a teacher too um I think like in the classroom, it, it, it's something I had to grow and to learn, um, to understand that uh, I, I have to be capable of teaching a concept, but also like giving them, I guess, maybe like an example. And then I, it's kind of like the, the progression of like, here, here's the, here's the concept. And now here's the example. I'm going to first walk you through one on my own. And then next, I'm going to like, like do it with you. And then I'm going to lastly, like ask that you try it. And then I'm, I'm going to be here, like guiding you if you need some extra help, you know, is that because it's a, a natural progression, I think, you know, of like of, of unleashing them and giving them some freedom little by little. Um, yeah, it, it's still hard. And like get back to the pizza example, I think like there's the tension inside like uh like it's just it's going to be more efficient like there's this um desire for efficiency and like it's like i'm just going to take over and like we want good pizza tonight so like let me take over but i think you can uh reach a good balance of like okay i'm going to demonstrate first um and since you haven't done this before like i'm going to i'm going to give you like the chance to to do this part or maybe i'm going to like let you try this and uh and I'll, I'll be here guiding the process, you know? I'm not just gonna like, all right, <laughs> your turn, you know, see if you can do this and you've never done this before. But being more of a mentor, I'm, like, I'm, I'm here guiding this process rather than like here. It actually reminds me of the Greek story, you know, Phaethon. We no. actually read this in class recently. Okay, go ahead. Phaethon is like, he's supposedly the, the son of uh, uh, the sun god and he goes to his, the, the sun god and um, he's basically like, dad, the parent, the, the kids at school are making fun of me because they don't think I'm really the son of the sun God. And, and please send me a sign or give me a sign in the, the sun God's like, like, okay, I got do whatever you want. And so faith on like, I want to ride in your chariot. Like I want to, I want to control the sun. And faith on like, you can't do that. Like ask me anything else. <laughs> you can't, you just don't know how to do this. Like even I am like, Hardly can do this, but then Faithon's like, no, like I want to do this on my own, you know. Um, and so he gives him the opportunity and says, you know what? Like I warned you, but he just like lets him go. And Faithon falls to his death when he tries to do it. But it, it occurred to me normally, like when I read that story, I think like Faithon's an, an idiot. Like the kid's an idiot. <laughs> Doesn't he know what he's signing up for? Like. Uh, his dad's telling him you can't like this is a really really hard thing but i think the last time i read it i was like wait a second like yeah faith is kind of an idiot for not listening to his dad but the dad's also like the sun god he is like being the worst dad ever you know like although he he like told him that you can't do this like 
he could have said like, you know what, Faithon, like we're going to do this together. You know, I'm, I'm going to let you do it, but I'm going to be here like guiding, you know, but that's the, that's the right approach. I think it's like, it's one of guidance. Like I'm not totally saying like you're on your own. Um, but I'm also like not going to set you up for complete failure and lead you to your death. Gotcha. Uh, I like it. I like it a lot. Uh, I guess it's, uh, yeah, get into the details with people. I heard one teaching model should work like this. I thought this was excellent. Uh, the instructor, basically, it's a four-part model. The instructor shows you. Then the second part is the instructor does it with you. And then the third part is, if this is a class, then you do this task with a friend or maybe a group of three. And then the fourth part is you do it by yourself. So, and then they probably should add a fifth part. Now you go teach somebody else. That would probably be really excellent if people would maybe behave that way instead of getting impatient. And I don't know, like people are painting a piece of pottery and grandma just yanks it out of the granddaughter's hand because granddaughter is eight years old and not doing such a great job. So I, I really like that. I like what you said. Um, yeah. Okay, let me ask this. So let's say a teenager realizes, you know, I just really don't like to work. Uh, maybe everybody else always taught me that work was bad and play is good. Uh, there's just a lot of hedonism out there. People are just always promoting uh, things that make you feel good. Work is what we do when they force us to do it. Play is where it's at. So let's say this teen realizes that this attitude is actually counterproductive and maybe self-destructive but they have to overcome a lifelong habit of basically just preferring play to work. Um, how do they do that? How do they change this attitude? How do I flip from hedonist to productive person? This is a, one of the, the, the biggest questions you've ever asked me. It's like, <laughs> this, would, this would change our, our total economy, you know? Right. <laughs> We're able to do this. Yeah, change um, my change my ethos in life. Yeah, um, I think it's it's just um, hmm. you really have to like help the person see that there's meaning or value in what they're what they're doing, what they're choosing to spend their time with. Like instead of the video games are going to be really tempting, right? And I see like. Obviously, even at school, sometimes it's really difficult to um, get a kid to, like, get off of their Netflix, you know, during study hall. Like, uh, I personally don't let them, like, be on their computers too much because it's just, like you said, the temptation to prefer pleasure over, like, working hard towards something worthwhile. That's a hard task for even an adult, you know, like an adult that's at work preferring Facebook or Instagram to actually doing something worthwhile. Um, and I think, yeah, that's hard. Like, how do you inspire a, a kid? Um, cause I think my initial thought is like the person, first of all, has to, has to like see the value in it. Um, like if you're not teaching the kid, like that, this is a valuable thing. And let me, let me, first of all, tell you my own experience of why it's valuable. Like, I think that's really important for them to know that even though this is difficult, it's worthwhile. Um, I'm, I'm thinking maybe like working out's a big one. People really struggle to get into the gym or go for a run or do some type of like martial arts. You know, it's, it's hard. It's easier to stay in bed. Um, 
But I think once they maybe hear the witness of another person expressing like why it's meaningful is maybe a, a first initial spark. Mm. But then uh, potentially like secondarily um, going to the gym and developing some type of friendship is another spark. Um, again, seeing something worthwhile, like the, the initial example and, and then the friendship and then the like forming a community. Like, I think it all kind of is rooted in a meaningful existence It eventually you get to the point where like, you know what, like it's, it feels good to be at home in my bed, but that's not worthwhile. Like that's not something I'm, I should be living my life for. Like what I should be living my life for is, is like these, these meaningful experiences. It's hard. It's hard to get to the gym. It's hard to go to, to practice, but, um, that's what like life is all about, you know? Um, I think it kind of comes full circle again, like just having that continual self-scrutiny of like, am, am I living my life in just a, in a way that's pleasant or am I living my life in a way that like is actually honorable and uh, something I'm, I, I'm proud to say I, I, I live my life this way. It's, um, it's not a question we like to always answer because it, it's, it's difficult to own up to the fact that I could be living my life better not easy. I guess I, I haven't provided like a, an easy solution, like self scrutiny and um, choosing to do something just because it's meaningful. It's not like it's not an easy magic pill. You know, I think, think people are like people search for that magic magic pill of like like I need to get my life in order. What can I do and how can I do that right now? Well, it it takes a lot of uh, a lot of work. You know, so. Okay. I probably haven't provided the, the easiest solution there. No, no, you haven't. But I, I think maybe this next question will help people figure out a little bit of contrast here. And uh, it boils down to hope and fear. Uh, I, I think if you're providing people a hopeful situation, you can have a meaningful life. You can acquire meaningful skills. Uh, other people will be happy that you have these skills. They will pay to eat your delicious bread because you have these beautiful skills and you can share these things with other people. Uh, that's a hopeful answer. That's very good. Now, people don't want to talk about fear, but fear works. I've read enough psychology that uh, it's like political ads. People say, why, are, why do they have these negative ads? Why do they have these fearful ads? Well, and everybody hates them. So why do we keep having them for the last 78 years or whatever? It's because they work. Um, there was a psychological study where they took a situation where people lost $50. And then on the way home, they rigged it so that they would find $50 lying by the curb. And you would think, from a logical point of view, people would be happy that they found $50 lying by the curb. I think psychologists found out that people are literally 500% more angry that they lost the $50 than that they gained $50 and got $50 back. And, and I've asked this question to the students and they said, heck yeah, I'd be mad. I would be very mad. I would feel like I could have had $100, but now I'm just stuck with $50. They feel ripped off. They don't feel good that they made up for the problem. They feel rotten about the whole thing in the first place. And so I guess here's where I'm going with this. You provide a very hopeful scenario where people can have a meaningful life and learn real skills. What about giving people the opposite scenario that if you just 
play video games all the time, you will lead a meaningless life and you will acquire no skills. And that's not going to be very popular with other people because anybody can just play video games. Hope versus fear. Yeah. That, that actually makes me think of a good example of, uh, of one of my friends who like, was really struggling with his weight and never had like the, uh, he never had the right motivation for working out. And so he didn't do it. But eventually he got to the point where he was like, I think he was like 300, he's over 300 pounds. And he's, a, he's not like a tall guy, he's like 5'8", five, 5'7". Five, um, but he got, yeah, he was like <laughs> very uh, overweight. But he said that the, the thing that changed in his life, because he's now like the epitome of fitness, and a very, very like well-ordered life. But he, yeah, he lost like, I think he's at 190 right now, uh, but just like pure muscle. But he said that what happened in his life is he got to the point where um, he looked at himself and he's like, I have two kids right now. And I think now he has actually five. But he said to himself, like, I have two kids. If I continue living my life this way, I will orphan my children. Like, cause he was like getting to that point where like, he realized that if he continues this life. Like he literally could die young or at least much younger than he should. He said at that point, he realized like this lifestyle that I'm choosing to live, I, I am doing great harm to my children. Like this is the thing I should be taking the most seriously is like raising my children. And if I don't take this seriously, like oh, I should like, shame on me. And like, I'll be damned if I, if I don't get this figured out. And he said that, like that, that's like the type of motivation that you need. Like maybe that fear based motivation. Cause like he said, having the, like the, the beach body is motivation, but it's, it's hardly ever going to like consistently help you turn down the French fries, you know, oh, for sure. it might tr- help you turn down the, fr- it might help you turn down the French fries like one time, <laughs> but like having a beach body just isn't like that motivation isn't strong enough. And it might only be motivation for like, three months out of the year, you know, when like you're really thinking about your beach body, but then summer rolls by and then like you're back to eating, eating whatever the hell you want to eat, you know, they said like that motivation of like, I need to do this for a very, very good reason. It's like the best reason I could give myself, which is like to be there for my children. So that like really sparked him on his fitness journey. And to this day, like he consistently, like, I think he's like falling in love with it and like, He's become good at it. So like there's extra motivation now to like want to form these skills. But uh, yeah, having that motivation is huge. And uh, potentially, uh, yeah, fear can play a, a huge role in that. Like realizing to yourself, this is serious and, and I need to take this seriously. I, I love that example um, just from the story aspect of it, but also just because it combines hope and fear. You know, I'd like to be in this much better shape that's hopeful. And, you know, maybe the beach body thing is attractive, but then the fear aspect is also just a very powerful story. Okay, so what about uh, a situation where people don't have that other person in front of them to serve or they're not in a life or death situation? Take your average teenager who realizes that they're a bit of a slacker and that they don't like to work, but then they realize that that's a dead end. Where does that person go to find the right mentors or the right friends? 
kind of like uh, where they go to find that source of meaning too. Yeah. Like they don't have any meaning. Yeah, because, you know, it's very uh -huh. easy for people to fall off the wagon. You know, if I say, oh, I don't want to eat any more cake because I weigh 300 pounds. But if all of your friends are big cake eaters, you're probably going to kind of keep eating cake. You know, there's that old saying that we are the average of the five people that you hang around with the most. Yeah. Yeah, that's, a, that's another tough one. It reminds me of Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. Like, what we really want in life is this source of meaning. Like, it's not just pleasure. It's not just power. It's not fame. Um, it's, it's truly like having something worthwhile to do, to be a part of. Um, and Victor Frankl talks about, like, yeah, you can find this source of meaning in many different ways, and it's up to each individual person to find this source of meaning. And if you don't have this source of meaning, you're going to just be wandering throughout your life miserable because, yeah, why the hell are you getting up in the morning? Why are you getting out of bed if you don't have something that you're pursuing that's meaningful? And I think you would probably argue that like, if you literally don't have any source of meaning, you are like a candidate for suicide, right? Mm. Because what's the point? And that's a hard thing. And he goes through his book, like talking about that. Like that, that's that's kind of like one of our biggest mission. Like one of one of the biggest first missions in our life is to find the source of meaning. Like what is it in our particular existence, like that I can do that's meaningful, or something I can be a part of that's meaningful. And I think like he lists work being one something something creative, doing creative work. He talks about relationships experience of love um and then lastly his other main one was like just a demonstration of uh of your willpower is another one like where you can say in the in this in the negative circumstances or like in in his, his situation the concentration camp that even despite the circumstances that you can still find meaning by demonstrating to the circumstances that you can still be a kind person even in a concentration camp, you could still like choose to give your bread away. You can still choose in the midst of, of like what seems to be horrible circumstances. You can still choose to go a different way. And that's a meaningful thing, you know? So yeah, he kind of lays out many different things. And I think for the kid who's struggling with that, um, it would maybe not just be like telling them like, this is your source of meaning, but it'd be again, that mentorship and that guiding, mm. um, a guiding role of like helping them try to figure out like what is it that you uh like get excited about or like look forward to or like who is someone in your life that you could uh, foster a deeper relationship with like so i think like that guiding force of helping them find that source of meaning to really stake their life on that's really powerful so if you were a kid and i don't know maybe if you looked at your friends and then you realized Gosh, I play video games six hours a day. I, I can play video games 12 hours a day over the weekend. Do you start to seek out different friends? I'm not saying ditch your old friends, but do you start to seek out different friends? Yeah, I, I uh, definitely did this in high school. I played video games way more than I, I'd like to admit. <laughs> Me too. Um, but it was, it was something that I did with other friends. and I, I didn't do it a ton by myself. Um, but I had to make the decision when I went to college, um, right before I went, I had the decision, like, do I bring the Xbox? Do I not bring the Xbox? And I had to say to myself, I'm like, I'm, 
You know what? I'm going to be the person who doesn't bring the Xbox with because that's going to be too much of a temptation. And I don't want that to be my existence in college. So it's like, here we go. I'm going to, I'm going to start living my life without this thing. Uh, but yeah, it was a hard decision, you know, because it's delightful to like play those video games. And um, yeah, I think at a certain point you have to say like, what is going to be my existence? And am I going to be this sort of person or not? And sometimes you have to make those more decisive uh, decisions, you know, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get rid of this influence or I'm going to get rid of this situation or maybe even this person, this friendship, because that's, they're not helping me or this thing isn't helping me. I love it. Hard decisions, though. I, I love it. That's really kind of backed up by research. I read the book Atomic Habits three times. It's by James Clear. And uh, I, I urge everybody to read this book. And he points out in the book that the second most effective way for a person to change their habits is just what you did. Where if you say, hey, I'd like to lead a more meaningful life. I'd like to focus on relationships when I go to college. I want to focus on work. I don't want to sit in my room and play Xbox all day long. Well, then you leave the Xbox at home at your parents' house. And that is going to be the thing that's going to change your environment. Um, if you don't have it, you can't play it. You know, it's kind of like, hey, if I want to spend less money, just leave the money at home. So I think that's pretty brilliant. That's the second most effective way to change your habits, according to Atomic Habits, which is a just a great book. Just a great book. Mm. So, um, okay, just a few more questions. Uh, a lot of people do say follow your passion. And I grew up with this advice. I loved this advice. Uh, my parents kind of sort of said this, but the rest of society really said this. And I guess my question is, what if my passion doesn't pay any bills? Uh, you know, what if, for example, I just love playing basketball or I love building model ships or I love baking pies or acting in community theater. And all of these things are great. And you could develop some real skills doing all of these things. But let's just say that none of these things pay the bills. Um, what are your thoughts on follow your passion versus paying the bills? Hmm. That's another good one. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, there, there's a, a, an amount of realism that has to um, be a part of one's life. You know, like, I think there's been times in my own life, too, where I thought, like, this would be really fun. Just like stay at home, make soap, you know, uh -huh. <laughs> I could do this for my life. But then I had to be realistic too and say to myself, you know what? Like there really isn't a huge demand for homemade soap right now. You know, there might be some people who are interested in it, but I had to be realistic with myself and say, like, this isn't going to pay the bills. And even though it'd be kind of fun to be like at home, just doing whatever I want, you know, uh, it's not going to work. So I think um, I, I wouldn't want to thwart like that that uh, creative energy and that passion. But you do have to like still be realistic, at least for like the, a certain amount of time, like before something like really takes off, like the bread baking, for example. Like I I, I can't just like launch into something um, willy nilly, uh, expecting it to like totally fix all my problems and like pay my my rent you know like it's something that i like 
I continually foster my skills and I try to like develop something that's worthwhile to other people, you know? Um, and at a certain point I might get to the point where like my passion, my creativity can pay the bills, but I, yeah, I guess I just want a person like if I had a, a student or a son or daughter someday who wanted to pursue something that doesn't, uh, doesn't pay well, I would probably encourage them to like, yeah, continually foster that, but be realistic too. Like, you do have to pay your bills and uh, maybe figure out a way to make this like actually uh, like a good product to give to people. But, uh, but also just be realistic that not everyone's going to pay for basket weaving. Not everyone's going to pay money to, to come to the theater, you know, like some people will, but uh, yeah, don't, don't throw all your eggs into one basket right away. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, that's also good side hustle advice in general, that instead of opening up a bakery, taking out a, I don't know, a 50000 or a $100,000 loan and opening up a bakery and then finding out you're not any good at baking bread, uh, hey, start making bread out of your kitchen, sell one loaf at a time, see how that works. I mean, that's kind of the general side hustle philosophy, which is start small, spend as little as possible, uh, don't use debt to cover up your mistakes or to make things easier just by papering everything over with money. So I, I think that's a really intriguing answer. Um, let's get super practical. Uh, how can people find jobs in a tougher economy? I, I realize this advice is not going to work in every state, but you were so good at this. I mean, gosh, everybody was getting locked down and people were all losing their jobs in March of 2020. And then here you picked up one painting job, then you built, picked up a cabinet building job, and then you picked up a second painting job. Um, how did you manage to do this? What advice would you have for others? Mm. Um, hmm. It's a good one too. I think uh, continually developing your skill set is is huge. I know Warren Buffett's like really big into that too, right? Like um, one of the best investments is investing in in oneself. Uh, I, I like to take that perspective of like being humble and acknowledging, like, I don't really know everything. So I'm going to devote some time every day to learning something new with, uh, with maybe like a podcast or watching a, a video on skill. Um, I'm like trying to continually develop myself so that I am marketable. That like I have some skills to give, whether that's painting, the bread baking, the carpentry, um, so yeah, there's there's gonna be times in my life when like it really won't make sense to do the bread to bake here. People won't really be looking for um, someone to paint their house, but hopefully that is a time when I can give a different skill, like teaching, or uh, give a different skill. Who knows what it might be? Like other things that might foster. But yeah, I guess I would probably say like just continually be in that mindset of, of I need to be learning something new. Because uh, if, if I'm just stagnant, that's not. Uh, I don't. I don't have much to to give to people. Okay, and so um, if people are tired when they come home at night, maybe figure out a way to not be tired. Because if they just sort of blob out in front of the TV for three hours, you know, maybe figure out a way to not spend three hours doing that in front of the TV. Maybe a half an hour, something along those lines, but certainly not three hours. Use those those hours kind of wisely. Um, your answer also makes me want to ask this. If we're going to pick up new skills, should we aim for things that are marketable? Because you mentioned a number of things like carpentry where you've made money at these things. 
So, I mean, you know, I, I could learn how to build toy ships in a bottle, but that's probably not marketable. It's probably an incredible skill. W would you encourage people to, at least in part, aim for things that are marketable? Yeah, yeah. Or if you... Um... If, if you're in something that isn't very or doesn't seem very marketable, like maybe find ways to um, make it more marketable. You know, I, this is something I mentioned at the, at the toward the beginning of like the bread baking, having some new ideas. You know, like having a bakery isn't too much of a new idea, but um, I had uh, an idea that potentially is something like I could improve upon to make it more marketable. So I had the idea that if I were to start some type of like micro bakery, uh, not micro brewery, but micro bakery, like a small bakery, I could potentially do something like this where I, uh, there's a thing called part bake um, or like, like you bake the loaf of bread for the first 15 to 20 minutes, which is the most pivotal part of the sourdough baking experience because you need steam and in like a really controlled environment. But the last 15 to 20 minutes really doesn't matter too much. And like anybody with like no experience could do it on their own. So this is something that's becoming more of a thing in Europe where it's like the, the very nice bakery bakes the bread for you the first 15 minutes and then they wrap it up in airtight seal and then they ship it. And since it's like airtight seal, you could ship it anywhere. But the thing is that what you're getting is like, you're getting really high quality sourdough bread, like really like the healthiest form of bread that you can get. But you're also delivering the experience to the home baker to take part of the process and um, have like bread that's like hot out of the oven. You know, like, because right now, like all we have is we have some sort of like take and bake recipes, uh, but most of the time it's like frozen dinner rolls. And it's just not like the most artisanal experience but i was yeah. thinking like it, i think this is kind of a, a niche niche um market of like reaching out to people who want the, like a really high quality artisanal bread um and want to take part of the process to a certain degree so this is kind of like the the newest thought that i'm having is potentially doing something like that where, where i'm like you mentioned i'm taking something that's not very marketable uh, maybe it's not ingenious but Potentially, I could market it to a crowd that would be like, "Hey, this is coming kind of cool, and I want to. I want some fresh baked sourdough, and we can have it delivered right to our door, you know. And I can be, I can be in the process with this baker." That's cool. That is just a super cool idea, and it's a natural outgrowth of what you're currently doing, and you know, gives a guy kind of a goal to look at for the future. So, hey, I've got one last question for you. Um, my favorite question. Um, let's look at the future. Mm -hmm. You are 100 years old and you are sitting on the front porch of your house and you are holding your fiance's, well, I guess she'd be your wife's hand. Uh, you are surrounded by kids and grandchildren. Mm -hmm. A younger person says, Grandpa, what is the most important advice you have for a young man or a young woman like me who is just starting out in the work world? What is your advice? Mm. Specifically, the work world. Yeah. That, okay. Hmm. I would probably tell him or her 
um, to, to make sure what you're doing is meaningful. Um, so like whatever work that you're, you're planning to start doing, make sure that you find it rewarding or, or at least like meaningful. You see the point and that you see that you're adding value to other people's life. Like if it's only just making money, you're going to get so sick of it. Um, but make sure, it, yeah, it's, you, you, you truly think that it's meaningful and rewarding for yourself and for other people. That's meaningful work. That's perfect. That's concise, and yet it's perfect. Uh, I guess like psychologist Jordan B. Peterson says, pursue what is meaningful, not just expedient. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Thank you, Tyler. This has just been absolutely fantastic. I hope to have you back again. Yeah, it's always great, Tim. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Seemingly Ordinary, a podcast about people who on the surface appear to be totally ordinary, but underneath the surface have amazing things going on. The biggest favor you could do for me would be for you to share this episode with friends. Until next time.